Hello all, this is R.D. Kulik, the host of the Ex-Millennial Man podcast, the podcast for SeedSane.com. It is the Thanksgiving holiday, and this is a very new intro here in 2022, but I'm going to play a podcast that we recorded early in our career. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is sound quality. At this time, we were using USB microphones. As a matter of fact, I believe I might have only had two microphones that I don't even know if I was using a mixing board. Just plugging in the computer, using Audacity, and this is the quality we got, which I'm not apologizing for because this is where we started. And I don't want to change that in a lot of ways because I think the quality is good, but more importantly, I think the conversation is great. I put this podcast up every year, Thanksgiving, because it's a very important story. Now, Tina does the interviews. There's two interviews in the show, one with her mother who immigrated from India and the other with her friend Kay who came as a child from England and then went back to England and then came back later with her own children. So these immigration stories we don't hear a lot about. But a couple of things I want to say. This podcast was recorded back in 2015. So a lot of things have changed. Donald Trump wasn't even president yet. And there's even a throwaway joke in the first part with Tina talking to her mother about Donald Trump. So there's some of that. But also... Our idea of immigration and the way we talk about immigration has become a lot more – it's become more heated. I think it's important to hear these stories because these are not the stories we hear all the time. Now, having said that, I would like to tell the stories that contradict what you see on Fox News all the time or anything like that. I'd love to tell the stories, and I encourage you to reach out, xmillennialmanseedsing.com. Tell us those stories. But there's one final reason I wanted to put this podcast up. In the first interview, the first half, you're going to hear Tina talking to her mother, Usha, who came to the United States from India in the 1960s. And she came because her husband was got a, a placement in a PhD program at Indiana University. Her husband, as you guys have talked, as we've talked about in the podcast a few times, that was a shared sata, who was my wife's father who passed away recently. A year ago, he was here in our house at Thanksgiving to tell us about something they saw, but to tell us not to worry about. And now we, we have said, we have said our goodbyes to him and he features a lot in the story. He may not feature his own voice, but his presence is in the story. Hell, his music is in this story. So I wanted to put this podcast out at least one more time because I think the story of immigration is very important, but I wanted to honor Sherrod, and I wanted to honor what he did because he is what we think of. He is what the right wing and the left wing talks about when we talk about immigration. He is somebody who came to this country for a better opportunity. He is somebody who who decided to become a citizen because of his children better schools, better health care, better education, better everything. And I, I wanted to honor my mother-in-law, Usha, with her words of memory. Now, this podcast talks about things, again, it's old, but I think the stories are timeless in here, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So without any further ado, let's cue the music. Hi, 
everybody. This is your pirate host, Tina S. I have one, I have hijacked the Ex Millennial Man podcast for SeedSing.com. And I am here with a very special guest today, my mother, Usha Sate. Say hello to the internet, mom. Hello, everyone. So I asked my mom to come here and join us today because uh, it's Thanksgiving. So she's here in town in my house for Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is a time where we think about people who have come to the Americas to seek a better life for themselves. My mother and my father immigrated to the United States from India in the late 1960s. And so I wanted to talk to them a little bit about that experience. It's, you know, part of the American tapestry. And so I'm glad you decided to join me here, Mom. Oh, my pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, obviously your decision to come to the States was made largely by dad, right? Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how that decision was made, how you found out about it, how you and your family reacted to that. Okay. When we first got married, I know he was applying to the universities here for some graduate school. And I think about a year after our marriage, uh, he started getting some admission letters. And uh, he chose Indiana University because that's where they offered him some assistantship. Okay. So having married to him, I was going to follow him over here. Of course, I didn't come right away because he was coming on assistantship and he had to keep his grades and make sure the money is enough for the two of us. So So dad had to make sure he didn't flunk out of school? Yeah, basically. He didn't need... distraction of a wife at that time. Uh, So it sounds like a long time to be apart. I joined him nine months or two semesters later. Okay. Okay. And during that time, you were living with your in-laws, right? I was living with my in-laws. And uh, surprisingly, my mother-in-law and father-in-law are very nice people, or were, I should say. And we got got along great. Uh, They treated me more like their daughter, not having a daughter. Mm -hmm. So uh, that worked out really well. And I was working. So during the day, I kept busy. And, uh, you know, uh, once or twice in that time period, I went and visited my parents. Uh, So you were living with dad's family in Mumbai at the time. Correct. And your family lived in Pune, which is a couple hours away on the train. Uh, about four. About four hours away. Yeah. So how did they react? So did they know when you and dad got married that there was an excellent chance that you were going to be moving to the States? Well, I don't think my parents knew. His parents, your dad's parents, your grandparents uh, knew because that's why we got married so at young age, so much at young age, because uh, your grandmother did not want him to get married over here, uh, I <laughs> to, guess it's some a American girl. Thing. Yeah, it's a cultural thing. So, you know, I mean, she was not exposed to any of it. And then uh, she wanted to make sure he's married. And, uh, you know, so that way she would have an Indian daughter-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so how did your family react? When- uh, I think we were, you know, it's a mixed feeling. We were all very excited that he got the opportunity to come here and get some higher education. So it's kind of mixed feeling. They're all excited about that. But at the same time, there is that sense of loss, maybe not permanent loss, but our daughter is going to move away this far. And in the 1960s, there was no Skype. 
There was no Skype, even the telephone. In Mumbai, my in-laws' parents did not have a telephone. My parents did, but at that time in the 60s, you had to book a trunk call and then wait on it to be connected. So it wasn't as easy as just picking up phone and calling somebody. Right, yeah. right. And I remember when I was a kid, this would be in the 80s, calling India and yelling into the phone and then you have to wait for there's like a two second delay so you had to wait while it bounced through space (laughs) yeah yeah that's true that's true that's true so you came and you came to indiana Mm -hmm. and so you were the wife of a graduate student obviously dad had his own things to do during the day yes but you kind of had to find your own things to do during the day. I did. You didn't have children at the time. And no. I was all of 23 years old. Right. So, yeah. so so how was that? How did you fill your time as a person who had just arrived? Well, I must give credit to one of my very good friends. Her name is Pushpa Kulkarni. She was... Here, a couple years ahead of me, her husband was also a graduate student uh, at the time. So, surprisingly, her parents and my in-laws knew each other. Okay. We had never met, but, you know, they knew each other. So, once I came here, she kind of took me under her wings. Okay. And she showed me the ropes, what to do, where to go. So, I joined the IU Dames Club. So, that way I met more Students, wise. there was an IU Dames Club. Yes, of course, there was an IU Dames Club. So, was that for like was, wives of graduate students or yes, what? Yes, okay, yeah, they were all wives of graduate students because uh, you know the students, uh, women students, naturally didn't have time for any of this. That we right, do it. It was more of a social club meeting, celebrating holidays, some okay. discussions and, you know, but that kind of got me out of the house. I think I can't remember whether we met once a month or once a week. I don't think once a week. That's too often. Uh-huh. So she took me there. She showed, took me to the grocery shops and showed me how to go about shopping and clip coupons and get the bargains because she had three boys and, uh, or two boys and a girl, three kids. So she knew how to stretch a dollar at that time. Mm -hmm. So she helped me a lot there. So what, uh, just for perspective, uh, the two of you, dad had a stipend, right, from the university. So how how much was that out of curiosity? Oh, my goodness. I think it was $280 a month. For two people to live on. For two people. But, of course, again, Pushpa, she helped me find some unofficial work, if you want to say that, you know, I was a babysitting. Okay. Because she was making very good money babysitting because most of the American wives that had children, they were out working, helping their husbands. Okay. So their children had to be washed. washed. Okay. So, but the rate was a whopping $15 a week at that time. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Or 50 cents an hour if it was hourly, but for a whole week. So it's like $3 for a whole day. That's crazy. But. I pay that for for half an hour. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) But at that time, $15 a week pretty much paid for our groceries. Okay. So, you know, to put things in perspective. Sure, relatively speaking, that 280 plus 60, that's uh, still a healthy percentage of your income. Right. So, I mean, and the. 
apartment was only like a hundred dollars a month. So, okay. you know, so we managed pretty well. So much so that dad was a student, so he could get some kind of loan or uh, help, financial help from some organization to buy his plane ticket. Okay. So whatever savings he had, he had saved it for my plane ticket okay. to come over. And that loan that dad had taken didn't need to be paid off until after he graduated. And, uh, you know, once he started working, then okay. he had to pay that off. But I guess uh, we were never used to any debt. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was like something hanging over our head. So out of his assistantship and my babysitting money, we saved enough money and I think in a couple of years after that, even before he graduated, we paid off paid that, that off. loan. So, you know, uh, okay. so I mean, it was enough money and uh, our needs and expectations were not very high. Everybody around you is a student. So you're all in the same boat. Right. We, I often tell people going out to have pizza was going out for dinner. Right. Know, big, big deal. Right. So, yeah. So moving forward in the story then, I believe that dad graduated in May of 1971, finished his PhD, Mm -hmm. and two months prior to that, your eldest child, my sister, was born, an American citizen. Right. At that time, did you think that you would stay in the States, or did you think that, were you still intending to go back? I remember dad's mother, my grandmother, (laughs) telling me several years ago, that he had always promised to come back, and he never did. Yeah, uh, that is true. That is true. We were thinking of going back, uh, but we wanted to work. Our dad wanted to work for a while and save some money and then, you know, have a little nest egg built before we go back. And uh, so his first job was a postdoctoral fellowship, actually, uh, okay. right after graduation. And then a couple of years later, he got a job in St. Louis at Malincroft. And then uh, you were born in, you know... 76. 76. And as you girls got a little bit older, and then uh, we started looking... By then, your sister was in school, and we looked at the differences in schools. Schools over here, even the public schools, were so well-equipped and the class size was small, about 25 children at the most, uh, as opposed to schools in India. When uh, Even when we were in school, there were 50 children in a classroom. And by the time you would have gone there and gone in school, it would be 60. And then personalized attention was not even heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, So we started thinking that do we really want to uplift because Vandana was already in school for three, four years. Do we want to root them, uproot them and take them to a crowded school Mm -hmm. and you know think that you're not used to it. And uh, one thing leads to another. I think you get used to the comfortable life, bigger houses, all of the above, things that are considered... Suburban American life. Suburban American life, things that are considered luxury in India at that time, like a car and a refrigerator and all of that. These things are just normal here. They're necessities. So do get used to better life. And uh, downside is you're away from your family. 
Initially, I used to be, especially the first few years after I came here, I used to be very upset at times that I'm so far away and, you know, just go through the moods of being gloomy and sad and missing the family. But slowly as you create your own family, like having children and all that, the intensity becomes a little less. Slowly get used to it. Think about this idea of family. There were always, when I was growing up, maybe 10 or 15 other Indian families that we spent a lot of time with that were your friends. They had children around my age. And uh, I, I now think of those people as my aunts and uncles and cousins, even though we're not blood relatives. And, and so I always think about that as this idea of the family that you created as opposed to the family that you're born into. I, was that a deliberate... Was that a deliberate attempt to recreate that sense of community around you in St. Louis in the 1970s and 80s? You can say that deliberate attempt, or it just happened because we were all in the same boat. None of us had our family here right. and, uh, as close. We were kind of thrown in together because we spoke a common language, we had common culture, and then through that, Friendships developed. Sometimes you get bound closer together because of your children. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a couple of the had the age. same age and, you know, they would want to spend nights with each other. And then, uh, you know, you just kind of get together for the holidays and start celebrating. And that's how we become a family. I mean, anytime any of us have big gathering or weddings, somebody says... Welcome to the family. It's a big extended family. Right. I remember my own husband. He has a large family on his, on his mother's and his father's side. And think of the way that he, that I know those people as my extended family. He's now come to know all all of our Indian friends in St. Louis as my extended family. Exactly. Because he knows them better than he actually knows my brother. And, you know, right. I don't have a sister, but my brother and dad's his brother. family and dad brother. He right. met maybe only once. Right. And, uh, yeah. Right. So you've lived a few places in the States. You obviously came to Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And then I believe you lived in Durham, North Carolina, while dad did his postdoc. Correct. And then you came to St. Louis sometime in the early 70s, 73, 74? 73. Okay. So you've now been in St. Louis for 41 years. Yes. Which is, and had three different houses there yeah. in 41 years. Looking back on it now, are you going to be modest about your age or can I tell people how old you are? Oh, I don't care. Okay. Well, you've now, <laughs> you've now spent two thirds of your life roughly in this country. That's right. But, you know, obviously your formative years, most formative years were spent in India. Mm-hmm. Look, looking at your life overall now, do you feel like you are more American? Do you feel like you're more Indian? Do you feel more Indian when you're in India and more American when you're here or vice versa? Or tell me your thoughts on that. <laughs> it's kind of hard to distinguish anymore. Uh, when I go to India, I don't feel like, oh, I'm an American. I kind of blend right in with them. And I I just go with the flow. I don't, even though I'm used to certain things here, and if I don't get them there, I don't let my family know I miss them, and I really want to have those things because I'm used to it. So I kind of blend in. Mm-hmm. 
try to blend in as much as possible when I'm in India. Somehow people still realize that, oh, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> you know, I don't know what makes them think that, but, you know, they it's, do. It's because dad is walking around in his Docker's pants and his <laughs> golf league polo. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and I feel every bit as American when I'm here. But I also have my Indian heritage, so we try to preserve that through our holiday celebrations. Or uh, Even though I'm not very ritualistic, uh, but at least we do right. some holiday Celebrating celebrations. Celebrating Diwali. Diwali and, and, you know, things like that. So, okay. yeah. Because I look at you and I think you're very American. You snowbird in Florida and... <laughs> play golf <laughs> and <laughs> happily retired people. yeah <laughs> so yeah no i in that respect yeah we're very much American. you've, you've always struck me as very assimilated into american culture yeah i think i have I and have. even I mean, even raising me and and my sister i don't think you've ever i don't think that's ever bothered you that we are very i think my sister and i are both very american and i don't it doesn't seem like that's ever bothered you and dad. No, yeah. it hasn't because, you know, if you're in this country, you you have to assimilate. You have to go mainstream. Otherwise, why be here? Uh, so, yeah, that's how we feel. I mean, dad is also very Americanized. I mean, right. you know, just... Uh, and at the same time, he's kept his Indian roots and hobbies and his music right. and uh, teaching the music also, so Indian music. Right. So I think... In my mind, we have a good balance of both cultures. Right. Well, people ask me a lot. You know, my husband obviously is not Indian. Uh Uh-huh. And people ask me sometimes, did that bother my parents? And I don't know if it ever bothered you, but I never got the impression. No, it didn't bother me and uh, bother either of us. And uh, if you remember, we always said we are very open-minded, and our expectations of our son-in-law is, both of them, they have to be well-educated and well-behaved and treat our daughters well. Mm -hmm. I mean, those were the three main requirements, you know. We wouldn't have put up with anything else, or at least not approved. If you ran away, then (laughs) it would be a different story. But, yeah. So, those were the expectations, and... uh, they were mad, so you know. I mean, uh, you know. And now this. you have a very cute biracial grandson. Oh yeah, he's the <laughs> cutest and smartest. And you're not biased. At I'm all. not biased. No, not at all. <laughs> so you came to the states. Going back again, you came to the states in the late '60s. That was a time of great social upheaval in the United States. Did you have a sense that that was happening? Or you was mean it, with the Vietnam War? With the Vietnam War and the hippies and, you know, the civil rights movement and all that stuff that was happening. In late, did you have a sense that that was happening? Or did it seem very far removed because you had your own struggles that you were dealing with? It seemed far removed because I was so new to this country. I was still trying to figure out myself in this new country and... Uh, what right. I'm doing and how am I handling things? And yeah, to be honest, it seemed very far right. away. Right. So you turn on the TV and you see it, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily it, yeah. resonate it's, with right. you. And then you obviously came through uh, the, the hostage crisis and, 
in, in the 1980s. So you became citizens in 1983. What drove your decision to become, I'll, I'll be honest with you, one of my earliest memories is going with you and dad to be sworn in as yeah. United States citizens and hearing you say the Pledge of Allegiance and get your little tiny American flag. Yeah. What made you decide to do that? First of all, we by then we had made the decision to stay in this country. So if you're staying in this country, you need to participate in its civil... Uh, civil governance civil, and voting and yeah, all that Yeah, voting and all of that. So that's one thing. Because uh, and other thing, I think, in that during the Iran-Contra and all that, and mm-hmm. uh, the Yugos were citizens born here. Mm-hmm. We were your anchor babies. You were anchor babies, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, and we were eligible. We had been uh, green card holders for more than five years. Uh, it was actually almost 10 years by then. Okay. So just in case, you know, there was a conflict between India and uh, U.S. and um, like, okay, we really don't want to go back. Uh, our children are here. We want them to have this good life. So we won't, don't want to be deported in just in, in case. I mean, you know. Right. What goes through your mind? So, mm-hmm. uh, so we said, you know, we, it's about time we've been green card holders for ten years. It's about time we became citizens, and uh, that was it. I mean, you know, we worked on it, uh, passed the test, and uh, you were there when we were sworn in. I so, do. I remember. Yeah. You know, I always think I'm I'm somebody that always votes in every single election, and I uh-huh. think part of that is because. I have this sense that my parents worked for worked for themselves to have that right, and I shouldn't take it lightly. That's good. So um, that's that's your influence <laughs> on me. Is there any other any other thoughts you want to share to me or share with me about your experience as as an immigrant or about what you've seen over the country in the last forty years? And yeah, I think at least when we were students, there may have been racism. Mm-hmm. But we really, being in the university town, we never felt it. Right. And Bloomington never, is a very, uh, it's like Berkeley in southern Indiana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we never really experienced it. There obviously was south, you know, mm-hmm. in southern state, but we were not aware of it as much. And mm-hmm. that's probably what it is. I mean, we are not fully assimilated when we were here, so we didn't feel the racism Although once, when we were traveling in early 1970s in the southern state, uh, I remember an incident, but that's the only incident I really feel, because we were at a restaurant and the... In, where were you? uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. We were in the restaurant, uh, I think it was before you were born, in 1974, and uh, your grandparents were here and your sister, Vandana, and, you know of us and the waitress just wouldn't come to take our just wouldn't serve us she just wouldn't look at us hmm. and uh, that kind of hurt you know that just like you know what's the deal you know right. uh, because people that came after us she took their orders and so we finally of course dad wouldn't you know he kind of got upset and he's like he demanded service so Finally, she came and uh, served us, but 
she didn't seem very happy to be serving us, I guess, you mm-hmm. know. But that's the only time, and it was a southern state, and mostly we have stayed in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and I haven't, you know, haven't felt that myself. And then uh, just recently listening to all these racial... To Donald Trump. Well, not Donald Trump necessarily, but the Ferguson... Michael Brown going mm-hmm. and then right, that few was other things. Not, not that far places. from your less than yeah. 20 miles from your few house. few other right? places and the riots and uh, it makes you wonder what's going on. Uh, that you so, don't see every day. Yeah. yeah. And also, I know it's a different subject and, I, you know, the gun violence has gone up considerably. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't really even think of it in the 70s and 80s that much. Mm-hmm. We're not scared. I'm like, now I feel like we're through. Our kids have finished college and high school and safe and, mm-hmm. you know, makes me worry about my grandchild. You know, what kind of world is he in right now? Uh, we want him to be safe and feel secure going to school and high school and all. In that respect, I think... That the country has changed. changed. Yes. Thank you for talking with me, Mom. I really appreciate it. it was, I've learned a couple of things here. <laughs> it's amazing how when you're a kid, there are things that you just never ask about. Yeah, that was. I think you. Uh, I think as a kid, you you think that your parents' lives started when you were born, and then as you get older, you realize that that's not actually that's true. true. Yeah. So uh, it does start. <laughs> A new chapter right. when the kids are born, of course. But but, uh, yeah. but anyway, I thank you for sitting down and talking to me. Oh, really my pleasure. It. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Hello, all. This is RD. I wanted to talk to you guys about a, another podcast that I do work on called High Heels and Politics. It's hosted by Marianne Christie, who I work with here in Southwest Ohio. And Marianne, she interviews a lot of influential people. In Ohio, she's interviewed... A lot of political people that are influential. But for those of you outside of this state, she's also interviewed people like Susie Chapstick Chaffee, a former Olympic skier who was the face of Chapstick for the 1970s and 1980s. It's really interesting to listen to that one because she talks about her struggles as a woman in the Olympics, but then how she used her celebrity and her attractiveness in order to get more rights for amateur athletes, which led us today to things like the NIL. Also, Susie was very instrumental in Title IX, which we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of. But it's not all just seriousness. Marianne has also interviewed the Naked Cowboy, the New York City icon that's been out there. Simon Lease, who a lot of you may know if you've ever seen The People vs. Larry Flint, he was the guy that arrested Larry Flint. He also arrested Jerry Springer when Jerry Springer was a member of the Cincinnati City Council here. So I encourage you guys go to Spotify, Google, Apple, go search High Heels in Politics, follow, subscribe the show. Marianne comes out with a new one every week, and it's an incredibly great conversation. And if you're interested or know anybody that may be on High Heels in Politics, just go to the contact page and talk to us. So let's get back to the conversation. I am here today with my very good friend, Kay Woods. Say hello to the internet, Kay. Hello. I've asked Kay to join us here. She's an old friend of mine. Well, you're not old, but we've been friends for a long time, I should clarify, for about 25 25 years or so. Kay is what I'll call a a re-immigrant. Kay, why don't you tell us briefly what I mean when I say you're a re-immigrant? I moved over to America, to St. Louis, when I was 10 initially, and then I lived here until I was 22 when I graduated from university. Went back to the And we UK. know your English because you say university instead of college. 
Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Then I lived there until August when I just moved back here now with my own children who are now more or less the same age as I was when I moved here originally. So it's um, definitely, yes, I'm a a re-immigrant. A re-immigrant. So as our pilgrims of yore, I assume that you are escaping the persecution of the Church of England. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't say I was going to have to talk about religion. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Have another sip of wine before we go. Um, no, no, no. We're nice Catholics <laughs> these days. So, yes. Yeah, so, so you are escaping. <laughs> I promise to relax in a bit. So as I understand it, you moved here for the first time in 1985, 1986, 86. And you've come back and you're here for 12 years and you've come back now nearly 30 years later with children of your own. And are so do you feel like you're reliving your parents' life? Do you, do you feel like it's given you a different perspective on on? Your parents? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, you. You definitely get a, a chance to understand. Uh, it's, it's definitely a chance to understand my mother in a way that I would never have done as a child. There's nothing quite like literally doing the same thing that your parents have done to your own children to then see it through different eyes. So, no, it's been a good. It's uh, I've 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 really enjoyed you know, enjoyed the chance to do that and, and, and see, see things how, yeah, see it through her perspective. So let's go back 29 years ago. Do you remember first getting off? Well, you didn't get off the Mayflower, you got off a plane. Do, do you remember first getting off that plane? Or, or let's go back even further than that. Do you, do you remember when your parents told you you were going to move to America? I, I do. Yeah. Now that was, the world was a, a lot, <laughs> definitely a lot bigger back then. And I had heard of America. I, I remember I liked Orphan Annie and E.T. And I think America was somewhere between those things. There was definitely New York City. I'm sure there was some great stuff going on in California. And, you know, I had no concept of, of America beyond those two films. And you moved about halfway between. In the and we middle. ended up moving one third of the way across. <laughs> we used to describe it to people. Right. And uh, just getting off, I have never, ever forgotten the feeling of stepping off of the plane and walking out and the and the sliding doors opening. And for the first time in my whole life, being in a foreign country that was so hot, the heat, it was <laughs> August knocked you backwards into the airport. And it was like nothing I had ever felt in my life. And that was the most poignant memory. It's, I think, so different from my girls because we've been on holiday, we've been to Greece, they've been all over the continent in Europe. They've flown, they've been to hot places before. You know, they had had that experience. But for me, this whole thing, it that the seriously, you know, the, the, the weather was this massive shock. Now, St. Louis is an absolutely horrible place to live. It has like 98% humidity. It's a swamp. It's a swamp. Yeah, it's basically you're, <laughs> you're, you land in a swamp. And I had never felt not just the heat, but humidity of that level where, you know, basically you just, you're just breathing water. Yeah. So that was a, that was a shock. <laughs> do, you, do you remember seeing your, now your father had already been here and had chosen your house and everything before you came. Yeah, you that's re- right. I remember driving up to you and I, I remember being to your house. It was a normal 
you know, middle-class suburban apples. Yeah. What, what did you think when you saw it? Was well, it big by your standards or? Yeah, it was massive. I remember, I remember writing a letter back to school. We drove up to this house. I remember writing back to school and telling all of my friends back in England in this letter I was writing, it's like, oh, everyone, we've become fantastically rich. <laughs> and um, reading this letter proudly out to my mom. So we have three stories. We have an upstairs, a middle, and we have a basement with a laundry chute. And I had to describe the purpose and the excitement of a laundry chute that you could actually drop <laughs> your clothes all the way down this thing. It would slide down three stories so that you didn't have that terrible inconvenience of carrying your clothes downstairs. But yes, my mum's saying, no, you, you can't, you, you can't tell people we've become fantastically rich, you know, <laughs> and of course you have no idea when you're 10 about land prices and, um, and things like that and relative <laughs> housing prices. You just think you now live in a castle. <laughs> However, it's a castle that you couldn't go outside of because it was too freaking hot. <laughs> so <laughs> as long as you stayed inside your air conditioned castle, it was all okay. Well, there's nothing more American than staying in. <laughs> your, inside yes. your air conditioned castle. Exactly. So you're now coming forward again, your girls had the same experience of thinking that you had all of a sudden won the lottery when you moved into your house in North Carolina. We did. Now we came out for a week to view the to view the houses and Olwen was nine and, and Beatrice was seven. And we didn't have an awful lot of choice, but we have found a very lovely house. It has columns in the front of it has a beautiful porch very southern because we've moved to north carolina this time Alwyn took one look at it and she burst into tears and i said what's the matter what, what's wrong why don't you you know don't you like it she said i we can't live here she said i won't have any friends because it's too posh no one will come around to play <laughs> with me and we had this wonderful estate agent who took put us all back in the car drove us over to her house and she literally drove us up to show us her house. And there's her kids outside of her house so that she could show Alwyn, everyone in America, right. live in houses of the same um, quality and standard and size. Right, that it wasn't so abnormal. This is not completely abnormal. We are not going to, she's not going to not have friends because we have become... That's interesting. I didn't realize that that would be... It's it's not ever something that I would think would be a concern, but that was that's, yeah. That's it really amazing. it really concerned her, mm -hmm. you know. So and that was definitely uh, very noticeable. So so what have you noticed difference wise between the the first time you came and and coming now almost thirty years later? I think one of the key differences that yeah from from before now has got to be the technology that is different between then. So I say about the world is definitely smaller. The girls have got a much, a completely different, everything about their, their ideas about America before they came had been shaped not just by a couple of movies, but by the internet and by a much more global society. So they're used to having foreign kids in their school in a way. Okay. They're used to traveling. They've been foreign places. So for them, it's, it's never going to, it was, it was not, nothing about the whole thing was so foreign. And that's entirely based on just, the whole internet and everything. So they're a little more worldly than you were. At that they age. are enormously more worldly. For example, when I came, I had never eaten pizza. I'd never eaten pasta. I'd never eaten rice until that point when we were, and I was 10, every meal 
pretty much was sort of, you know, the meat and two veg, um, and <laughs> English, food. English food. And it was completely foreign. The idea, you know, foreign people ate that. Well, I would never have tried something like that. Grown ups, maybe mum and dad would sometimes go out for a pizza and this was a really big deal. And they certainly wouldn't have brought us. So when we arrived, that was, uh, that was a big part of the culture shock was all the different foods. Now, my girls, on the other hand, have grown up eats, you know, eating all that stuff is just a normal part of their life. Right. And, um, although they were very excited when they saw the Jamie Dodgers today. Yeah. <laughs> they were very excited to find that's, well, there's another key difference. Okay. So when we came, there was a tiny English shop in St. Charles and, um, we had to drive. So that's like, what, half an hour drive from St. Louis is this little place and it's, it's a quaint little English shop in the middle of St. Charles. And in the front half of the shop is all the stuff that the tourists buy. You can go in there and you can get teapots with the royal family on them. and you Things know. that English people would never actually buy. Yeah, But in the back, there's a secret door. And it opens up. <laughs> you go into the back and the room was like this amazing thing. You walk through there and in there was all of the English foods that you could only get from this special shop. And oh my goodness, the price you would pay for a piece of home, <laughs> a piece of something that tasted normal. Right. But so for me, I was not the most, so I had a, it was a lot bigger culture shock, all the food. And then you miss, of course, you miss the food more. Whereas I think my girls, because they've always been better about and more exposed to stuff, right. it's a lot less of a shock, right. therefore, when they, when they come. So okay. you know, they've, uh, yeah. Now, I mean, my parents are Indian and I always remember going to the Indian store and there were two or three Indian stores in, in the area when I was growing up. And so it's kind of surprising to me that there's, there's only one English show in the entire St. Louis metro. Yeah, but English isn't exactly known for having good food. Well, okay, <laughs> people go out for an Indian. No one goes out for an English. Well, okay, but back ever. then in 1985, nobody ever went out for Indian food. It was no, I guess mom, not. No, because uh, mom and dad couldn't get that either. John, I think John Cleese once said that English food is is what it is because they had an empire to run and couldn't focus on the food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, and they also, I mean, the other half, like the technology, I was thinking about this is just like being able to communicate so easily with people back home in a way that you can't. But when I came out, we had, a, we obviously you would you call people on the phone and we all used to gather around the speakerphone in the kitchen. It was all done through satellites. So when you spoke, you had to speak to the other person. You had to wait two seconds for them to both hear you and reply. Did you have to yell? Well, if you had the speakerphone on, it was unbelievable. It was like <laughs> yelling into a cave to start off with. Okay. And then you've got it bouncing off the satellite <laughs> and then coming back. So what you would end up doing is sort of over talking the people at the other end. And it was, oh, it was a complete, you'd never really have a proper way of staying in touch. Right. But these days, you know, Alwyn has her own email address and, um, you, you know, Skype. of course you can Skype people so right. you can see them right there, you know, in someone's living room and, and you're right there when you do that. It's, so much improved. So you and I met when we were about 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And so it would have been a couple of years after you had moved to the States. And I remember you were the only other person I knew whose family had those blue airmail envelopes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we could write letters, at least in those days. Right. You know, that was a good skill was to, was was, to, be, to be able, able to, write to write a letter. A letter. And yeah. I remember my, my parents always getting excited when the little blue 
yeah. envelopes showed up. Exactly. And they were the things that you folded like a puzzle together. Oh, it. that's right. Yeah. yeah. And you had to then stick them down the side. Right. And then open them. Oh, I do. I remember those. Right. Well, my mom used to spend hours writing letters, writing letters. to yeah. people. You know, she would have spent hours doing that. So do you think that's a lost art now that you could just Skype people or even text them or send them little messages via Facebook Messenger? Um, Sort of, but it's such a much more real form of communication than you get in a letter where you get this sort of you sit down and you think about what you're going to say. Whereas I just WhatsApp a photo to someone that I would always have done and bang, right. out it goes and they ping straight back. So instead of, thing. It's, so, it's whether you're three miles away or 3000 miles away. It's it makes no difference. And that has made a huge difference. You, you do know, have to, to remember about time zones, though. Yeah, that's the only thing. That's, yeah, <laughs> I, I text my cousins in India every now and then, and sometimes I forget that it's the middle of the night for them. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the other thing I think I was I was thinking about technology again because because technology seems to keep being the thing in my head that's got to have made a huge difference. And thinking back to my mom, and thinking back to the how the first thing I got when we got off the plane, I got a mobile phone. The next day, realized. You're not going to get anywhere. So that's the first place we went mm-hmm. after the social security office, which sent us away <laughs> because our forms hadn't cleared. So the next most absolute priority item is to have a smartphone. Straight after the smartphone, we went and bought a sat nav <laughs> because as soon as I have that, I can then drive anywhere. I don't have to worry about getting lost. So when I want to find out how do I get somewhere, you just plug it straight in. You can't get lost back. Whereas when my mum moved here, I guess it's the same moving anywhere back then would have been, that's nothing to do with transatlantic, but that would be the same as moving anywhere. But it was still for her, she would have had to learn wrong side of the road and also all that other stuff. Um, so on a less serious note, is has that transition been difficult for you? The weird thing about you is that you learn to drive on the right side of the road. Uh, yeah. And then spent most of your adult life driving on, on the, the other left. side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> now you're back on the right. Is that, has yeah. that been a difficult, have you almost killed anybody is what I'm Not asking. yet. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're yes. not endangering your children or anybody. Else. No, it's, it's all good. No, <laughs> to come to the terms quickly that um, if I ever see someone coming straight towards me um, on the wrong side it's of the you. road, that it's probably me. Yes. <laughs> But uh, actually, no, it was uh, it was all okay. Yes, we're. Uh... <laughs> so how how do you find this country different thirty years later? Uh, oh my goodness! It's a big question, and um, we have better beer. I know that your husband is yes. excited about that. Better beer, better beer is good. So much of it, I don't, you know, we turned it on the radio and got that, and play that 90s music all the time. <laughs> like so it was like, left. I never left. And you could literally be driving along in the car and go past all the same restaurants and you see everything and Still it's all the same. Garden yeah, no, we don't have those in North Carolina. I was a bit disappointed along with lack of toasted ravioli. <laughs> what do I see that's different? I think it's more about, I, I do definitely still see the, the differences in between the two cultures, you know, and differences from where we've come from and where we're going. We, when we came, you know, that whole integration program that was in the school, this for me is something that you really, really notice as an outsider coming, coming to this country. You mean that when they would bust the city kids yeah. into our suburban? I had arrived when I was 10 and never really thought about anything like this before. And all of a sudden you had this issue. And I know it's in part about hitting 10, you know, and becoming that age, mm-hmm. but having this whole issue of race thrown in your face in this really 
big way that I'd never thought about before. And we we called them the city kids. Yeah. And that was what we called them. And that was code for, for black kids for the most and part. It there was, were a few that lived out in the suburbs where we were. But for the most part, they were black part. They lived out. So you got like other people from, as you say, Indian people, Chinese people that lived out in the suburbs and stuff. But then you had the city kids and they played by themselves. They used that you every everything about the integration program that I ever saw was a complete didn't work at all. I don't think I graduated with one friend or in one class or had any meaningful interaction during at least the time that I was there. Um during well, that's fifth grade through twelfth grade. Now maybe I have no idea what happened on a grand scale I left and you know I don't know if they still do it or what happens. I mean, right. do you have well, any I think, idea? Well, they they, they do. did it in St. Louis and they don't do it, I think, here in Cincinnati. I don't do it. I don't know if they do it in the local public schools where you are. You're in. Yeah, they do. They, they do. They do. They do massive amounts of, of, um, of busing. Yeah. So like our local school had, um, when we looked it up, like 70% of the kids there on free school meals and they achieve that by busing. You've got this enormous amounts and I'm, in a way that I've never noticed before of this inequality. And that is something that the girls and me are noticing in a big way, having come from England and then having come over here. And but I, I just want to and talk. You didn't see that same segregation between rich and poor in the UK? It, not where we lived, no, but we lived in a very urban area. Okay. So obviously there are loads of loads of pockets of deprivation in the UK and there are loads of pockets of complete white middle class but where we lived was a much more mixed more area. Urban, so this right. is probably this is a lot of this is just my personal story and our personal experience mm-hmm. here with the with the kids not a I can't comment on the country as a no, whole. No, 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 but when I came out then and you so we had that ex- had that experience of, of of the city kids and learning for example you know to call them african americans and learning that but very much this feeling that they were over there and they were separate from the people that lived out in Chesterfield County right. and went to our schools right and as, as i recall even even the african american kids that lived out in the county didn't really mix with the kids from the city Yes, exactly. Because they were by, um, literally had the same money as the other people that lived out in the county. And as I came to understand as we got older, it was about money, not really about color. And that that's what that was about. But you don't understand that when you're 10. No. You start to understand that stuff when you're in high school. And anyway, having arrived back, I feel that we've gone from this place where everything, where the children were, Oh, this is hard. Having to understand they, they, my kids are, we're essentially colorblind. They've, they've, they've come from this school where, and this is the really something that I've noticed. And it's such as it's hard to put into words that you were allowed in the UK to describe someone by their color. So what's, who's that girl? Over, oh, my, my friend who's black could, if there's a row of kids, you were allowed to say my black friend, my Indian friend. Oh, they're from Poland. Oh, that's one of the Polish kids. And you would have a whole thing that because no one really cared or saw it, it was no different than him in the red hat or her in the orange jumper. Now, we came over here and I remember asking one of the teachers, we'd been there for not too long. I said, I don't want to put my foot in it around here. I said, I just want to make absolutely certain, you know, I get these terminologies right. And I said, 
what do we describe? What would we describe people as these? What's the correct politically correct term? I said for um, Beatrice's new friend, I said, is she, she's, is she still African American? And they looked at me and, um, and said quite clearly, you would never use her race to describe her. You would never say that. Okay. That would not be okay. She, that was Beatrice's friend in the orange jumper or in the purple coat or in the hat. But you would never, if there's a row of kids, use their race as a word to describe them. And I realized just how indicative that is of how close racism is to the surface and how that people are afraid to use that as a descriptor was to me really it shows that it's not okay in the same way. If once people get beyond it and you can describe yourself by your color in the same way that you describe your hat, then that's where you realize you've got much to a, a better place. With right. Kids. Because the idea now is that if you say, oh, Beatrice is an Af- African-American friend, you're saying that as a pejorative where you don't necessarily see it as a pejorative, but because it's so close to the surface that some people do, see that as a negative thing that we avoid saying that. Exactly. So anyway, I have found that strange. And I have found that as, again, as an outsider, I saw it when we came before. And now that I go, I've gone away and I've come back. It to me is one of the things that most has stood out to me because I'm quite sensitive to it. I was very keen for the children not to come here and discover racism realize how utterly impossible that is always reading books about it at school right, right. she's learning about up. it it's part of growing up as even, well as she's getting you know, to that age UK, she would have had to have started learning this stuff so i do realize that in part if it's her getting older right. but also it's just sad that she now has to do that and that her first observation and she really noticed this we drive from our neighborhood is now almost predominantly white. The people that live around us now are white in our area. And you drive a few streets over, the houses get a lot smaller. And the people that live there are majority black. Mm-hmm. And you've got that, that yeah, ghettoizing distance. And you can't help but notice, therefore, that the poverty and that this idea, is, and, and it's just ingrained, you know, it's just going into her head and I'm noticing it and I don't like it, but it's true. And she has to understand that it's not about color, but it is about color. And I don't, I don't think this is especially because we're in the South. I think this would still just be all the same wherever we were. I think that's true. But I did worry about that when we found out we were moving to the South, that somehow we would face more of that. So let's return a little bit to a lighter note. Yeah. Sorry. So, uh, (laughs) So, so have you, have you found our tea selection acceptable since you've been No, back? it's vile. So <laughs> I have to import it all um, in uh, vast boxes from the UK. I, I do know back. that you can get cans of spotted dick. I don't know what that is, but no. I think it's funny because I'm internally 12. <laughs> so... <laughs> no, don't bother. Okay. I yeah. won't bother with No. <laughs> all right. You've just had your first, you said your first proper American Thanksgiving because your parents clinging to their English heritage never, yes. never did it. And then you were here with my family for Thanksgiving. Yeah. What, what did you think? Did yeah. you enjoy the celebration? Did you I feel did. thankful? I, I did. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was, it was fantastic. You know, I've really, really enjoyed it because it was so nice to have, um, all of it, all of the proper American food done properly. Yeah, like, <laughs> By Indian people. Yeah. <laughs> 
Precisely. That's just what I was so as, as Indians, we have welcomed English pilgrims into That's, our home. Exactly. Yeah. The melting pot thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I certainly thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us here on the ex-millennial man at seedsing.com. Uh, as I mentioned before, this is my friend Kay Woods. She has a business called Kids to Go. Kay, you want to tell us a little bit about what your business does? Sure. I do. I write books and guides for the childcare industry, um, primarily in the UK. And one of the big things that I promote is diversity awareness involving very young children. These are preschool aged children um, in diversity issues. So it is something that's very close to my heart. And I, I've done a lot of work with trying to promote that. And I would like to, now that I'm here in the in the US, do a slightly modified version of my pack for the for the US market and try and raise that. It's a really important issue to get people talking about race and talking about religion, even at the preschool level, and not treating kids like idiots or adults like they're incapable of thinking and talking about these important ideas. So yeah, that's terrific. And what's the website? It's kids to go K I D S T O G O dot co at C O dot UK. Okay, great. And our head editor RD will link to that on the website. Well, Kay, I thank you very much for talking to us and uh, I wish you a happy transition to your life, new life in America. Uh, bye. <laughs> The Ex-Millennial Man podcast is a production of SeedSing.com, fully owned by R.D. Kulik & Associates, LLC. Producers Ty Kulik and Ryan Kulik, adequately engineered by Ryan Kulik.